This is Dr. Emmett G. Price III, and this is Coffee Talk. Hello, and welcome again to the official podcast of the Guitar Department at Berklee College of Music. My name's Ian, and we've got another episode of Coffee Talk for you. This week, we're joined by Dr. Emmett G. Price III. Dr. Price is an internationally renowned expert on black music and culture, who authored the book Hip Hop Culture, is the executive editor of the Encyclopedia of African American Music, and is the former editor-in-chief of the Journal of Popular Music Studies. Dr. Price founded the Institute for the Study of the Black Christian Experience at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and served as chair of the Department of African American Studies at Northeastern University. He's also an accomplished pianist and composer who has toured Europe and the Caribbean. As always, a lot of this content will also be available on YouTube, and we have a ton of other great content on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, so give us a like and a subscribe on whatever platform you use, and you can also hear more of Emmett Price on his podcast, All Revved Up. Here's our interview with Dr. Emmett Price. Welcome, everyone. I'm Kim Perlack. I'm the chair of the guitar department at Berkeley College of Music, and welcome to another Coffee Talk. Uh, as usual, um, we have Cheryl Bailey, our assistant chair, here with us. Hey, Cheryl. Hey, doing? I don't have my Berkeley College of Music mug, but it's festive. So. I really like that mug. Yeah, That's it's got a guitar on it. It's got a guitar on it. That's good. That's good. Hey, Ian, Steve, the, our senior coordinator, who's with hey, us. Hey, y'all. How's it going? And our guest today is Dr. Emmett Price, who is um, our new Dean of Africana Studies at Berklee College of Music. Hey, Emmett. Hello, Dr. Hey, Price. Hey, hey. <laughs> Coffee cheers to you. Um, <laughs> okay, please hydrate. We're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. Um, what I want to say to everyone is um, we're really excited to have Dr. Price here today because um, all the time on Coffee Talk, we're talking about coming to music school and developing yourself as a musician, and then looking at all the applications of that in your life that will be artistic, that will be your work, that will be your life's twists and turns. And I can't think of a better person, honestly, to have than, than you, Emmett, because you're a pianist. Mm -hmm who has gone through your education as a performer, as a classical musician, as a gospel musician, as a popular music musician. And then you're thinking about where does our music come from, which led you down this road of history and ethnomusicology, which also led you to ministry and service and building things. Um, so all of our students really are going to be in the people business, in the music business of building things and building connections. Mm -hmm. And so I think like, we're going to go in a lot of different directions, but I think it's just important to hear what someone else did and the energy that you have to bring to all of that in, in your work. And then also what you envision to bring here um, yeah. in this, in this great new position that, that you'll be in. So, but the first thing is um, you held up a bottle of water. So everybody's <laughs> going to want to know, like, what's your coffee philosophy? What do you, what do you do? Well, I don't drink coffee. I, I'm like that 1% of the world that just missed that memo and perhaps perhaps gets it wrong. And, and while I'm in the things that I get wrong, I'm not a coffee drinker. I don't eat chocolate. 
Um, and I say that that's what's actually kept me married for over 20 years because my wife has an extraordinary repertoire of coffee from all over the world. And she knows I'm not going to touch it. And she has her favorite chocolates that she's, you know, commandeered from here and there. And they sit at the house and I'm not going to touch it. So, so her valuable assets are extremely safe in our home because I'm not going to touch it. And we've been married for over 20 years. So it's worked for me, even though I think I'm weird because everybody else drinks coffee all day long and I just drink water. <laughs> well, you're not the first to hide to be the hydrator on this podcast, which is probably why you have a good amount of energy. <laughs> and you also probably know your upper bounds is what oh, I'm yes. saying. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's one thing that people say after meeting you is you have a good positive energy that you bring to things that's constructive and creative. Yeah. Do you feel like that's been something that you've had in your life that that has always been with you? Yeah, you know, Kim, it's an interesting story. I like to tell this story because it, it helps to bring perspective to how we choose to embody our life experience. I grew up in the inner city of Los Angeles, and because of the time period that I grew up in, um, the gangs were really bad. The LAPD, Los Angeles Police Department, was really bad, and I had an anxiety that I was not going to live to be 18. And when I got to be 18, I didn't think I was going to live to be 21. And then when I got to be 21, because two of my greatest heroes, um, Dr. Uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X were both assassinated at 39, I didn't think I'd see 39. So once I crossed these few thresholds, I made my mind up that every day that I woke up was going to be a good day, even though I had no control over it, and that I was going to use it to be, as John Coltrane would say, to be a force for good. And so that's kind of the disposition that I walk the world in. And, you know, you know, some days I need to stay at home because it's not a good day and I don't want to be externally projecting to people. But but, you know, most days, you know, when I wake up in the morning, I, I tell myself, you know, some people use mantras, some people pray, some people meditate. I tell myself today is going to be a good day. Let me put as much good energy out here as, as, as possible. And let me also use my creative sensibilities to do something good on behalf of the universe, on behalf of people, humankind, and on behalf of the places that I'm associated with. You know, I think that I'd like to go a little deeper into that because I was just thinking of an email I just received from a student and he said, you know, I'm having such a hard time right now with my health and my mental health and my stress level. And I just don't think I'm contributing enough to your class. And so, and you know, I we wrote back and forth in the lunch break and I reassured him that he was, because sometimes you can't see what you bring. Yeah. And of course he's bringing a tremendous amount of good energy. What do you say to yourself? What did you say to yourself, especially when you were younger, um, when you were really having a hard time? Like how did you practically put that into practice? Yeah, I mean, that's where music came into being. Um, you know, I've talked about, you know, three things really say in my life. I have really phenomenal parents. They're still on the planet. I'm so grateful for that. Um, you know, I had a church community that really wrapped their arms around me uh, in ways and shapes and forms that, you know, even to this day, uh, as I talked to elders who were around when I was a kid and they were telling me things about myself that I'd had no idea, I'm still really mesmerized by that. But then music became my sanctuary. Music became essentially 
my inner place where I was able to communicate and articulate those things that I couldn't speak into existence. I learned to play them into existence or I, I learned to, to, to notate them into existence. So, so music became the therapy chair for me. Music became the sauna and the spa for me. Music became the detoxing ability for me to really process through, you know, whether it was writing raps, whether it was, you know, creating, you know, gospel licks, whether it was, you know, writing jazz charts, whether it was, you know, working through some Chopin and, and putting a little blues into it, which I know we're not supposed to do, but I did it anyway and it worked. Um, you know, it, working through different things so that I could express myself, find and listen to my own voice and, and learn to say that my voice does matter, right? And that my expression actually does matter and in doing that, I realized that I did have a place in the universe. I did have a place within humanity. And I did have a place within the various spaces and spheres of life that, that I, you know, in, you know, I was in present to. So, so that was part of it, you know, and I'm kind of one of these weird people. I, yeah, I went, to, I went to college as a math major um, and then ended up double majoring in math and music. And, and so, you know, I'm one of these kind of hyper cerebral people who, you know, um, you know, I'll, I'll draw stuff in my little notebook that don't make no sense to nobody else. But, you know, to me, it's the magic algorithm that will get me through the day. Right. I mean, so, you know, all kind of stuff like that, which I've learned to live into that geekiness that I think mm -hmm. many of us who are creatives, like there's that aspect of things that really get us churned up and revved up that we're really excited about. Yo, those things give me life. So I'm all in on that. Mm -hmm. I think you came to the right place if you want to put a little blues in your Chopin. <laughs> I, can, I can say that as a fellow classical musician. <laughs> that was not the way of our people before. Oh, no. here, so. <laughs> I'm glad you're here when we mix all the things. Um, what did you do on the days, though, when music, which had been your refuge, as it was mine and I think Cheryl and Ian's too, what did you do when music became really hard? Yeah. On those days where you felt like you couldn't speak through your instrument, where, you know, you know, this thing that had been a safe place for you in itself became a challenge. How did you get through that moment? How do you get through those moments when they happen? Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm a bibliophile. I love books. Mm -hmm. And one of my favorite repertoire of books are biographies. Mm -hmm. And early in life, I would always read the biographies of musicians. And, and there was always that captivating moment in the life of a musician via their bi biography or autobiography where they hit that, you know, that pivotal moment. Um, and many of us hit it numerous times, but there's always that fork in the road where you choose to go left or you choose to go right, right? In, in, in the matrix, you know, conversation, you take the blue pill or you take the red pill, right? But there's always this moment where you have to make a decision. Are you going to go for it no matter what? Or are you gonna let that thing defeat you and you're gonna lay on your back and just, you know, kind of lament the fact that, you know, I coulda, woulda, shoulda, you know? And so in those moments where I hit the, that kind of proverbial uh, roadblock or that, or that brick wall, I would go back to some of my favorite places in biographies and, and listen to the voice of Miles Davis or listen to the voice of John Coltrane or listen to the voice of Mary Lou Williams or listen to the voice of Louis Armstrong or listen to the voice 
of some of the musicians who, you know, who inspire me and, and, and to really say, you know what, they found themselves there too. And, and they decided, they made a decision, right? And then I had to do the exact opposite and say, okay, John Coltrane, people would talk about the fact that they would go visit him and he wouldn't even open the door because he was practicing. And they had to stand outside the door for like an hour and a half until he took a break. And then he would open the door, let them come in, and he would go back to practicing for another hour and a half. And they had to wait literally three hours to have a conversation. I don't want to be like that. So th there's a little bit of, you know, navigating those spaces, but you do have to decide. And I think like any, any musician, you, you have to decide to go for it. And, and when you have that first major achievement, you finally say, you know what, this was worth it. And I would do it again just to have this moment right now. And that becomes kind of that inspiration to do it again and to do it again. And then you build a lifestyle of pressing through and forging through, right? Because I think the way that we express ourselves literally keeps us from losing ourselves. And I think that those of us who are wired as creatives and, and, and particularly those who are wired as extreme creatives, that balancing act is actually what keeps you in alignment and what keeps you locked in to the environment, to the universe, to your divinity, to whomever you want to be locked into, but also to your own inner being. So I think, you know, people often talk about, man, I see you walk down the street and you got this rhythm to you. Yeah, because I walk, talk, eat, and, you know, I poop music. I mean, that's what I do. That's exactly what I do, right? So I'm <laughs> walking down the street, you know, there's a metronome clicking, you know. Now, it may be in 5'8", right? And nobody else may be able to count that 5'8", but, but I'm, I'm, still, I'm still clicking to it because that's just kind of how I'm wired, you know, and I've learned to accept that. You know, I think there's a part of that, too, where it's very obvious that you are a musician in everything you do. Mm. And yet you do a lot of things that on their they could be defined other ways. You're a professor, you're a minister, you are now a dean, yeah. um, you've run programs, you know, you you know, there there's a long list of things. And I think especially for younger musicians, but for all of us, we can get caught up in definitions, like what it means to be a musician and you're, you're doing X, Y, Z, or that's not, or you failed. Yeah. And I think some of what everyone sees when you're walking your own rhythm, you've somehow come to an awareness that you are the musician you're meant to be, no matter the application, like you're working on yourself and then you work on each avenue of application. Yeah. How did you get to that point? Did you ever struggle with just sort of like labels and, and whether or not you were successful in one part of your musical life if your life took another turn? Oh, yeah. I mean, this is this is like the million dollar question, right? It's, it's, it's all about balance. And, you know, the moment that you find balance, you're out of whack again. Right. Because, right. It, you can find balance in a vacuum, but life doesn't happen in a vacuum. There's always external things that are going on around you. And so you have to find balance. It's, it's almost like, you know, uh, you, you know, when you do a physical therapy, you may be on that little ball that has gel in it and you're supposed to balance on one leg on that little ball. And, you know, you finally get it. And then somebody opens the door and like the little breeze of wind comes in and then, you know, you're falling again because a little external piece that happens. So for me, what it's about is my values and my integrity. Right. So 
So am, am I, am I operating at my best? And I define my best as my sense of excellence. And my definition for excellence is doing the best that I can with what I have. Right. So am, am I operating at my best, even though my best may not hold water to somebody else's best? I have I, learned in, in my years of, of maturation to no longer compare myself to somebody else because that's almost comparing myself to a straw man or a straw woman, because I don't know the insides of that individual. I can only see what's external and what they availed to me. So I'm not even comparing myself to them. I'm comparing to myself to my perception of them, which is a straw person. So I stopped doing that. And I say, with what I have in me, am I, am I pulling it out? And most often I'm not getting to that nugget, right? Because that's that intimate sacred space that, you know, uh, in moments when you're practicing, you may get there. But the moment that somebody else is in the room, you kind of, eh, I'm up in the sick, you know? And so my sense of excellence and integrity means that I need to be able to do what I do by myself when somebody else is in the room because my, 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 my desire is to be that blessing in, in my terminology, to be my blessing to somebody else. And I can't bless them if I hold back when they're in the room. So that alignment is interesting. Yeah, it's um, that's that's so interesting. We talk a lot about about what you can demonstrate, you know, who, who are you, what you can demonstrate and having a service relationship with what we're doing as musicians. Um, do you feel like being a pianist is still at the core of a lot of what you do. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, I think that's always going to be my sweet spot. You know, I've messed around with the electric bass and drums and, you know, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> because of, uh, I'll tell you this insecurity because of this insecurity in terms of how I was able to read classical music, but in, in my adolescent and particularly during high school, I was not a very good improviser. Um, and so I, I was embarrassed though, because I'm black and you know, all black people can improvise. And so I actually switched over and played woodwinds during high school. I played clarinet and tenor saxophone <laughs> because of the insecurity. Um, but I think at the core, the way that I, I show up in the world is really as, as a keyboardist, as a pianist, um, you know, I played, uh, you know, uh, Hammond organ and pipe organ. Um, and it, it's the relationship with the instrument and vis-a-vis -vis the music that I try to emulate in my relationships with people, right? Um, you can't fool music, yeah. right? You, you, you can't, you, you can't, um, you, you, you can't con the music. The music will always hold you honest and the music will ha always hold a, a, a truth to it. And so I try to take that same posture with people. I don't try to con people. I try to show up and, and be truthful and, and be honest and have integrity in my relationships with people uh, because that's the value that I've learned through music. And then I also understand that music, as complicated as it is, is built on a lingua franca that is also built on blocks and repertoire. And so as I'm building things, I go back to the bare essentials. What is the infrastructure? How do you build a foundation? How do you build those beams that have weight bearing entities so that you can build 
structure upon structure upon structure, the same way that I build harmonic progressions, right? There, there's a root, you know, there, there's a melodic thing on, on, the, on the top, usually, not always. And I fill that in with the voicings that I want to really uh, articulate in terms of the coloring, the timbre, the tonal quality, the density, you know, the saturation of sound. It's the same thing that I, when I build, you know, a, an organization or I build a department or a division, you know, what's the foundation, right? What's the melody up there? And then how do we fill that in so that it's either rich and dense or it's sparse and light? And then how do we add that rhythmic aspect to it so we can get that that kind of that kind of bounce or that that bob or you know whatever it is? So I'm always thinking, you know, like that. That's the way I write. Um, you know, that's kind of the way I talk, right? So um, yeah, I guess I'm weird, huh? <laughs> no, I think well, honestly, maybe we're weird. Maybe, maybe that's why we like you. Weird is good. <laughs> that's, that's why we're kindred spirits because I think that's very much you're describing. I think the way the guitar department was built and the way it continues to be built that it's our core as players that um, that informs like you know what we build because we know what students need and yeah. and I'm so glad that you shared your um, your fear and your insecurity about improvisation. I share that exact fear. As classical musician, and I felt like all you know, all the other guitarists could improvise, and I couldn't, and I was hiding. Also, I didn't want to be like the girl who can't play, you know. So I, you know, I was hiding from that, and and then you know, it was over the years I would stick my toe in a little bit, and then when I came here to Berkeley, I, I just dove in the ocean, you know, yeah. and really started. I took take lessons and and playing a duo with a colleague of ours in the department, and we teach each other, and that was my diving into the ocean. Um, and now that I'm, I'm in there trying to swim, um, I'm grateful also, not just because I'm learning to do it, but also because I think it, it puts me in touch with how the students feel when they are doing something yeah. new, you know, and hard for them. Yeah. And I feel like it's part of my service to the department in a way to, to be constantly learning. So not just because you want to grow and learn, but because you need to know what it feels like. Yeah. Yeah. And do you feel like, I mean, did you ever come back around to, to improvisation in some way on the piano? And, and was oh, yeah. that, uh, did you feel like it served you in, in a way? Oh yeah. I mean, most people know me now as somebody who improvises. I mean, when I talk about the fact that I play classical music, people are like, huh, we never heard you do that. I mean, so, you know, I, I think it gives itself its own life and vitality, but I also think, and, and, and I'll say this, when I was 11 years old, I, 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 um, I'm going to say I drowned, but I'm not dead, so I'm still here. But I drowned in the Pacific Ocean when I when I came to. There was people beating on my chest, and you know, spit water out, just like you see in the movies. And and from that day, for the next couple of decades, I was deathly afraid of water. I was like, I wouldn't take a bath, literally. I mean, I would never be in a pool, uh, even if it was just one of the little rubber pools that you have in your front yard that submerged my body higher than my ankles in water. I would not do, I would not do it. And I, I uh, for many years, a colleague and I would take students uh, into the Caribbean as we were doing kind of uh, cultural research and cultural exchange. And so it happened to be in St. Croix one year with these students. And um, this Rastafarian brother showed up out of the blue. And he was like, hey, man, 
And I was like, hey, yeah, how you doing? He was like, yeah, don't you know that over 70% of God's creation is underwater, man? And that messed with me because I'm a minister. And how can I, how do I profess to, to, to love God and God's creation when I'm afraid, deathly afraid of over 70% of it? So when I got back home, I went and I learned how to swim all over again. And one of my favorite things to do now in my life is to not only swim laps as exercise, I have a kayak that I take out in the water. I love to fish. Like I submerge myself around water because at every moment being around water, I have to face my fear. And it's one of the greatest exercises in life to not run from your fear, but to run to it. So for me, like musical stuff, like, yeah, I want to find that measure that is knocking everybody out because I want to run to that. And I want to sit there and work for hours on that one little figure. Because for me, that that's like where the joy of life is, is, is accomplishing that small thing that actually was really large, but yeah. in your ability to navigate it and not be afraid of it so much that you run from it, it becomes small. And so for me, I talk about being a divine optimist. I do believe that musicians can heal the world. I do believe that where politicians and those who run their mouth all day long get it all wrong, I believe that creative artists are the ones who will actually lead the world in whatever we can define and describe as harmony, whatever we can define and describe as peace, whatever we can define and describe as those healing principles that many of us hope for. I believe it's gonna be the creative artists who do that not necessarily the pontificators, not necessarily the politicians, and there's no rub on them. I think they're wonderful people, most of them. But, but I think, you know, the creative artists are the awesome people who, you know, are on this planet for a purpose. And many of us don't necessarily understand that. We don't understand that. And I think that that's what we need to help train leaders to, mm -hmm. to stand on your post and to do the things that only we can do on this planet. I think it's really interesting that you say that because we often talk about in the department about being in a leadership mode when you're playing, mm -hmm. no, no matter your role in the piece of music and what that means. And a lot of what it means is that you're, you're sort of putting yourself in a supportive role to the music in a service role of the music and to everyone around you and recognizing that a lot of your musical problems are really non-musical problems. Yes. You know, can you be patient? Can you be kind? Can you be prepared? Can you be organized? Can you yeah. be, you know, confidence comes from putting yourself out there and doing this and what are you reluctant to do? And I think in that way, that's the practical application of what you're saying. That's why you become a leader in the world because you, what you're accessing is, from a position of strength in yourself. And then you're doing something that inherently connects other people and can connect them in a positive way, maybe across divisions. Yes. And I think that brings us to a nice place to, um, to talk about what you're gonna build here at Berkeley. Um, but before we do that, I wanna see what's on Cheryl's mind. Um, I saw your brain working, Cheryl. <laughs> no, 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 that was just a little internet fluttering. <laughs> I don't believe that. I don't believe that. I know now. 
<laughs> I like, um, well, I, I also, I, I love this thing that you're talking about earlier about reading biographies. And I love that too. I get a lot of inspiration and precisely for those moments, for those reflections on years of development and the time when they almost gave up. But, you know, musicians, artists, they could be, you know, philosophers or whatever. I do really enjoy a good biography from that point of view um, because that that connects to this other thing about the, you know, dealing with adversity as a turning point. There's so much about the discipline of developing an art form that it's not just that, oh, from this hour to this hour, I'm working on scales or I'm working on repertoire, I'm working on these things. It's a lot of self-reflection. When you listen to yourself back, you don't like what you hear. Sometimes it's not what you're hearing. It's, it's saying something about yourself that you need to deal with that you don't like. I, I had I, one when I was a student at Berkeley, John Abercrombie came and I asked him something about this, like, oh, what do you, how do you play that? Or, and then I said, well, I don't like the way I sound. And he said, kind of just was right out. I mean, he didn't know me. I was just, but because this is the common thing, it was like, maybe it's not your playing you don't like, maybe there's something else in there. And that's, man, that blew me out of the water. I was like, whoa, I gotta, I was like, well, how did he know that? You know, <laughs> because that's really the artist struggle in so many ways. Yeah. is we have to dig into these things and it is uncomfortable. But I find that in order to grow, we need to do that. But to, to work with students who are at that point, like I was when he said that to me, I, I was sort of like, but I, I was ready to hear that at a time. But some folks, it's, it's nurturing that with them, that they are able to be able to go, yeah, this is about, yeah, developing technique and, and uh, musicality and tone and dynamics, but it's also about something deeper about developing in yourself. And I think that is the hardest place and the most important work for us as educators to be able to nurture that with students. Um, yeah. So anyway, I just, I really connected with what you're saying and just being in touch with that process. Um, and that it is really is necessary for growth. No, I think it's essential. I mean, you know, when we when we find and we have a number of phenomenal students here and, and, and certainly a number of prospective students. And I, I will say this to our prospective students as well, because just being able to play chops or just being able to read the notes off the page, that's like one piece of it. But what are you contributing? What, what, what are you giving? What, what are you sharing? Right. How are you interpreting that? And that's the piece that I think helps certain musicians stand um, not above, but stand apart from others because they've developed enough of enough confidence and courage to allow themselves to literally interpret somebody else's stuff and make, make it theirs, even though they're reading the, the page and they're reading the notes for how they are, right? So I had a, 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 a piano teacher who was actually a life mentor um, I'm listening to myself call him a piano teacher. I mean, this this cat transformed my life. His name was Bill Bell, phenomenal musician. Uh, he passed away in 2018. Um, a phenomenal musician, one of my professors at UC Berkeley. And he would say, you know, uh, this guy hazed me and, and put me through a rites of passage in order to get private lessons from him. I mean, like, 
I can tell the story now. He's no longer with us. But I mean, he would have these dinner parties and I'd have to be a valet, like moving cars and stuff in order to, you know, but I did it because there was something about his playing that was so gorgeous. And so he he would have me play at scales. And he was, and you know, I'm playing the scales. He's like, you ain't saying nothing, man. You ain't saying nothing. I'm like, I'm playing the scale. And he and he said, move. And he sit down and he played the scale. And he played that scale almost like it was like one of the most romantic ballads ever. Right. And it was just his interpretation and his phrasing. And, and so for me, it's not just music, right? Even our tools, right? I mean, you, you, there's a $20 hammer and there's a $125 hammer, right? They're both tools, but that $125 hammer has something that that $20 hammer doesn't have. And, and, and that's what I think we need to develop in terms of our musicians and our musicianship to allow that confidence and that courage to come out so that it's not just a scale, but it's a piece of work, even though it's just a tool, even though it's just a building block. I, I love that. I love what you said about um, interpretation and uh, because it's such an art, right? And, and so is improvisation, but you're using all the same stuff, you yeah. know, and you're just, and it reminded me, um, I had a, my teacher, uh, Willie Ruff was an arranging teacher and he used to make us arrange for just who was in the class, like whoever came. So it was always, yeah, right. So, you know, I, and he gave us assignments. Like sometimes it was like Duke Ellington charts and he would bring his duo and they would play. But then it was also like, you're going to do Schubert this week and you're going to do this medieval choir. And I had the Earl King by Schubert and I had like, you know, five guitars and a trombone and um, a bassoon and a cello and a tuba. And um, and he had a he brought his French horn, but like we were going, you know, we were cruising through this thing, and he's playing the melody on French horn, and he's yelling, yeah, 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 the whole time, and it was the most killer thing. And then he's like, wait, what if you doubled this? Like, tell him to double this, and he's making me switch all the parts, and everybody's got to transpose because of the, and he would just scream and cheer for whatever it was, and it was like, it makes you see that. It's we often put things in stylistic boxes and yeah. it doesn't seem that you do that. You bring no, your energy no. to what it is. Yeah. No, I've had so many phenomenal teachers in my life that I'm just so grateful. Um, you know, folks who have invited me into a space to avail the hard conversations of dispossessing myself of those stereotypes that we often kind of pick up. Right. And, and so, you know, I've had folks who will sit me down and say, no, listen to this. And then they, we would talk through it. And it wasn't just, you know, well, where's the melody? Where's the bass line? And what kind of chord is that? No, what do you think the facial expression of the musician is in this moment? Or what do you think the composer was going through in this moment when they wrote this? Like that level of conversation where on the very surface, you'd be like, I don't know, right? But then as you actually listen to what is going on in the piece, you can say, well, maybe, there's this going on and maybe there's this going on and may. And I think that that sense of inquisitiveness and the curiosity, I think is what drives the creativity and our ability to make those interpretations and also create our own stuff so that some people, somebody else can ask, what was he going through when he wrote that, right? So, so yeah, I think there's so much more under the hood uh, when we lift that hood up and really get our hands greasy. Mm. 
All right, I'm coming back to under the hood in a minute, but in some ways you're answering a question that Ian brings to the table every time. So take it away, Ian. Yeah, so there's a question that we ask everybody on Coffee Talk, which is um, what's something that students should be thinking about that they might not already have on their radar? Like what's a question that they should be asking that they might not think to ask? Yeah, I mean, my favorite question in life is when you got to the fork in the road, what made you choose the direction that you went in versus the other direction, right? And it's a relative question, and it, and it really depends on who you're talking to. But I think students should often ask their mentors that. Students should often ask their teachers that. Students should, anybody who they respect, they should ask them that because it will invite them into a deeper and, and more intentional reason for actually respecting that person even more. Right. So many of us have teachers who we respect them because they're phenomenal musicians, but you have no idea what they've gone through in their lives and what the what the external influences in their lives were that actually helped them to develop their craft in the way that they did. Right. So so when you get to the fork in the road, what made you choose the direction that you went in versus the alternative? That would be my question. Wow. In a yeah. second, in a second, in a second, my dear uh, departed colleague, uh, Dr. Leonard Brown, we, we were over at Northeastern together for many years, passed away in 2019. He would always ask this question to students. And, and he had a nice gruffy, what, what, what does music mean to you? I love that question. I love that question. What does music mean to you? Because it's one of those questions that you got to get beyond the superficial and you got to get beyond what you think the person wants to hear. And you have to go deep. And you really have to kind of sit with yourself for a little bit and say, whoa, can I even imagine a day of my life without music? Right? Because then that gets to the essence of actually what the meaning is to you. Right? So, so I think I'll give you those two questions. I think that's the perfect segue because... One thing that I think is going to be really great about our collaboration with you is making sure that we all have an avenue to go deeper into the history of what we do and yeah. where things come from in music and what our philosophies are. Like everything we're talking about has a root, you know, it has a history, it has a support. Like you're talking about reading about other people's lives. What did they do? But also like, you know, how does that translate into how we learn? We learn the music of others, but we're trying to make it our own, right? And that's what we're trying to do in the guitar department. And I think there's a hunger for that and, and almost a like a lament from some of the faculty that in this day and age, it's not like when we were young and we didn't have the internet and everyone had to go to the library and you were forced to go deep because you literally had to go somewhere. Mm -hmm. And now that you have these resources at your fingertips, you're not forced. And so a lot of students don't say like, they say, who is my teacher? Who is my teacher's teacher? But they don't go back and they don't know the history of our music. And that's a fork in the road that you took yeah, because yeah. you were a player and then you went into ethnomusicology. So maybe by answering, you know, talking about your perspective about how we can shape this historical journey for students in a better way, maybe you could talk about why you took that fork in the road yourself. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, there's a couple of reasons. One is because when I heard some of the stereotypical and overly sensational things that people were saying about musicians, I just, just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that Charlie Parker played so well because he was on dope. I couldn't believe, you know, um, certain things about, you know, women 
um, and, and why they weren't present. I just couldn't believe that. So for me, that sense of inquisitiveness led me down to a path where I said, okay, well, women were literally written out of history because they have always been exceptional musicians creators, composers, and, 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 and performers. So there was something that was going on where they were literally written out of history. It's not that they didn't excel, right? Um, th there was something going on where, where people, because of their own biases and because of their own stereotypical analysis of race or of class, where they wrote these things about certain musicians that inherently weren't true. So if I can peel the onion back, and begin to cry about the untruths, then how did I construct a historical analysis where I could begin to figure out what was true? And so for me, that sense of inquisitiveness took me on the journey to study ethnomusicology, took me on the journey to start writing um, and, and, and to really synthesize from my own sensitivity as a musician. And I say that purposely, I do have a sensitivity as a musician. For my own sensitivity as a musician, how would I construct a narrative and how would I perceive or add perspective to what is going on here? And, and for me, that brings it back circle because the way that I learned music was by invitation. Somebody invited me to look over their shoulder when they were playing so that I can see what they were doing. And then somebody invited me to take a lesson. And then somebody invited me to replace them on the piano bench and to play. And then somebody invited me to do my first gig. And then somebody invited me to put my first group together. And then somebody invited me to learn how to learn the business of how to keep your group together when other folks are trying to poach your musicians, right? And, some, and so the point that I'm making is that sense of invitation has seemed to dissipate with all of the technology that we have because YouTube is becoming that invitation to certain people. And as many resources as YouTube has and as many resources as social media has, you're still not gonna learn that sensitivity. You're not gonna learn how to touch that instrument via YouTube. You're not gonna, under, you're not gonna learn that posture in terms of how to really extract something from those notes from YouTube. And that comes from an invitation of another human being to really show you that and to really sit with you. So I'm not worried about all the technology. I think it's great. Use it for what you can use it for, but you're still the human contact. It's still the honesty that comes from somebody saying, I, I remember this, I had a, they, we, we back at UC Berkeley, I think I was a junior senior in college and Marcus Roberts came to do a master class. And I was, I think I was the second person to go out of four or five. I think the fifth person to go was, uh, was my dear friend VJ Ayer, who's over at Harvard now and is, you know, world, world-class phenomenal. He, you should have heard him back then. I mean, he was good then. He was working on his PhD. I was still working on my, my uh, bachelor's. I mean, yeah, my bachelor's. And Marcus Roberts said, okay, what are you going to play? And he sat right next to me. I mean, I could feel him breathing on my neck. I mean, he was sitting right next to me. And so I had worked up this beautiful arrangement of autumn leaves. I mean, I had worked it up. It was gorgeous. I mean, the intro, mm, I mean, it just, it was pure. You can feel that maple leaf with all the two tones of brown and green coming down, you know, on that wonderful autumn day as I played my intro. And Marcus Roberts took his arm and he went like this on my hands on the piano. So the whole piano went bloom. Now, the first thing I did was I looked into the audience in the auditorium and I was like, oh, mm. 
I'm embarrassed. And Marcus Roberts turned to me and he said, what did you just play? And I said, mm, well, you know, this was Autumn Leaves that was written by such and such. And he's like, no, what did you just play? And I was like, well, I hadn't really got to the head of the tune yet. I'm still in introduction. He was like, no, what did you? And I'm like, okay, we gonna really do this right now, man? Cause all these people are watching me and I'm not feeling this. But he was like, what did you just play? And he said, hum it to me. So I hummed it to him. And he said, well, how come you didn't play it the way you just hummed it? And I said, ah, he said, listen, man. He said, I can tell that you worked up this introduction because you put a lot into it, but you're so nervous right now that your fingers are sliding and gliding all over the place and you're not executing. He said, you're not pressing your finger all the way down to the bottom of the note to get the full range of the sound when the hammer hits on the, on the, uh, on the string. He said, close your eyes, hum it to yourself, and then play it. And I did that. And that changed my playing forever because he took a moment where I was literally embarrassed in front of all these people because I thought he was about to shame me and do all that kind of stuff. And he affirmed me in a way to say, it's there. I just need you to bring it out. And so for me, I think that's what we do as educators. We, we see something in our students. We see that raw gem that just needs to be polished and shined a little bit. And we extract it and we bring it out, right? And, and, and help them to see that it was always there. You just need to learn what to do with it. It's a power. It's like the X-Men, right? You, the X-Men, when they're, when they're new in their powers, they make a mess of everything. I mean, like, they're just blowing up stuff and, you know, just, you know, doing all... Because you have to learn how to focus and you have to learn how to wield it in the very exact place, time, and space where it could amplify and maximize what you're trying to say and what you're trying to do. I learned that lesson from Marcus Roberts. He'll never remember my name. I don't even know if I gave it to him. I don't even know if he'll ever remember that moment, but I remember it. It was, you know, 30 years ago. I still remember it today. And it influences the way, not only that I play, but also the way that I teach. I think a lot of times at Berkeley, we're talking about moments like that and reverse engineering them and creating a curriculum based on that. You know, I think all of us, no matter what type of musical we've gone to, we have those teachers, we have those moments. But I think sometimes we're told, you know, curricularly, Berkeley is unique in the world because of the way we sort of reverse engineer that and then allow people to be more creative with their choices, broaden out, right? And what I loved when you came to visit the school and talked about your vision, should you come to run the center and be the dean, um, you talked about that curricular approach. I don't know if you remember this, but it was an answer to a question that I had asked about curriculum. And, and you talked about that is this like this historical record of a community-based approach to teaching music that allowed for like mentors and mentees, but came away from like straight ahead copying of things yeah. and allowed people room to make their voice. And what I love about that was I think that we could use the knowledge to sit in, that it's not, that that exists 
as a historical pre precedent, like outside of the sort of teacher-student relationship, but in a larger cultural context. And I'm wondering if that's something that you see that, you know, with the center, we could bring together more like right out front that, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things we're trying to do with Africana Studies here is to allow Africana Studies at Berkeley, and I use the Big B, the Berkeley Enterprise, not just the college and the conservatory, but Berkeley, NYC, Valencia, and all the various expressions, for Africana Studies to sit within the enterprise as a hub for excellence in both performance and in um, scholarship and research and contextualization. So those things can talk so that we never remove the music from the places and spaces by which they are the lifeline and they are a valued entity, right? So that we don't extract the music almost the way that a museum would extract artifacts and then put it you know, for exhibition. No, we wanna keep the music in circulation in those places and spaces it's because they are the lifeline. But we, the way we teach that is is not to do other people's stuff, but to be invited to participate in an ongoing dialogue and conversation. You see what I mean? So, so, so that it's not you know cultural appropriation or imperialistic dominion, but it's it's the invitation to say, hey, this population of people have always spoken this way via the instruments. Now let's take a journey here and let's learn this by inviting one of their experts to come and participate in this conversation dialogue so that we can learn the context along with the praxis, right? And so that we can actually take it and, and you know, uh, break it up into pieces so that we can interpret it, so that we can translate it, that we can receive it and then put it back together. And so I think we do have to think about pedagogy here and also the methodology by which we use the pedagogy in order to create a curriculum that passes the muster for accreditation and all that good stuff that's all important, but also that is effective and impactful for these creatives who are really ready to get to the it, right? They're, they're, they're really ready to get to the it. And we have to say, you know, it's always, you know, music curriculum is always like, okay, here's what it looks like in the end. Now let's take it apart. And here's your this, and here's your that, and here's your this, and here's your that. And then four years later, okay, capstone, let's put it back together and see what we have. And you find the rate of attrition is huge because the students actually wanted to get to that, right? So, so how do we do both and, right? How do we do both and at the same time? So students are always feeling it, even as we're taking it apart so they can see what's under the hood, right? You know, it strikes me like as a, in, in my, music reading and the history reading there's often so much of our american music history where we're saying things like searching for robert johnson yeah or the vanishing of Harry yeah. Payne, right and and it always struck me as like well i mean robert johnson is right there he's a luminary of the guitar right black swan records is a historical fact it's a it's a foundation upon and yet somehow because of the way history is written and because of who writes history Mm -hmm. we're having to look for things we're having to search for them right mm -hmm. and so i'm wondering from your perspective like what should be the first invitation that we all accept into looking at our history better in a not in a maybe not better but in a deeper more comprehensive way that's more true 
Yeah, but I I I, I think Kim, you've been doing it, and I and I'm looking personally to you. Um, because as the chair of the guitar department here at Berkeley, your own personal research into Justin Holland, mm -hmm. uh, a great American, um, you know, guitar, you know, hero, as it were, um, mm -hmm. you, you've uncovered that uh, in plain sight mm -hmm. and have gifted that to folks so that we don't continue to think about the guitar in the stereotypical and and disassociative ways that we have in terms of race, class, and culture in this nation, you have projected that there was an African American, a black man, uh, born in 1819, died in 1887, who was a phenomenal contributor to not only guitar pedagogy, not only to guitar style, but as a musician who was uh, classically trained, right? And so to awaken that historical gem, not as a plus one, but that is integral to this instrument that we all love, right? I think that that's the work, right? It's, it's not, it's not, it doesn't have to be called anything. I think that's the challenge of this conversation about critical race theory and all these other things. It doesn't have to be called anything to do the right thing. The right thing is that there were people who were here who have been written out of history. They haven't been forgotten. They have been written out of history. There have been women who have been exceptional musicians, composers, and creators, and, and who have been impactful in the lives of so many folks. They have been written out of history. So we don't have to call it something in order to do the corrective thing. We just have to have a little bit of courage mixed with a little integrity and the information mm -hmm. so that we make sure that every student at least touches that and then they can make their decision of what they do with it, right? And I think that that's the piece. We have to have enough courage and integrity to put that information so that we can dispel the myths, so that we can eradicate the lies, and so that we can disassociate those things that have been stereotypical and perhaps even overly sensational that have never been true, right? It, it, it's not the sense that there have never been great guitarists. I mean, are you kidding me? Like, like let's get rid of that right now. There've been a whole host of them. And by elevating these folks who have been left out of history, doesn't mean that they now become in conflict with the white guitarists or the Asian guitarists or the Australian guitarists. No, there's enough room for all of us to be together because that's the one thing that we know about music. Music does not discriminate. You either play it or you don't. Right, 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 right. What do you think um, is going to be your next step with this? Like if there are students listening right now and they want to dig in a little bit, you know, yeah. what's your first advice to them? What do they go look for? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the, the first thing is look inside mm -hmm. and then figure out what feeds you. Because our diet is always changing. Right. Our, our, our diet of what we're listening to. I like to suggest that I listen to a whole lot of stuff, but it depends on the season of life that I'm in. Right. So right now I'm listening to the 80s funk. That's like where I am right now. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm in, I'm, you know, switch, you know, gap band. I, that's where I am right now. I'm sitting right there. So but you got to figure out what feeds you in the moment that you're in, because we're on this journey. And at every juncture of the journey, our, our, our palate and our and our. Um, our, our, what we want to eat is a little bit different, right? And so I encourage students to be honest about that. And, 
and be all right listening to stuff that may not, you know, if, if you're a classical guitarist and you want to listen to some punk rock, hey, give yourself permission to do that. I mean, give yourself permission because you may be listening for something that most other people don't listen for. So you give yourself permission. And then I would suggest this, find people to be in conversation with. We don't have enough conversations. Everybody's on the phone responding to whatever you see. Find some conversationalists and get on a regular routine to say, hey, I listened to this album last week or I watched this concert last week or I saw this documentary last week. What did you think about that? Like, how are you processing that? What are you, what are you sensing from that? What are you reflecting on? And get back, we, we got to get back into conversations because every, everybody has become an uncurated expert on everything. <laughs> and, and it's like, you, you know, we, we can't even have dialogue anymore because if I say something that you disagree with, all of a sudden I'm getting canceled. And I'm like, no, you can't cancel me. You can't, right? So I think the challenge is we need to be in conversation with, with one another so that we can learn from one another. You know, that old proverb that iron sharpens iron as it rubs up against each other. I think we need to have more conversation. So check your palate, see what's on your menu for you in this season, and then find some other people to conversate with and enjoy that, that kind of give and take. You know, remember before the days where it was easy to get together. We used to have to gather everybody together and we'd go have the listening parties, you know, and it was whatever mm -hmm. CDs or albums mm -hmm. you could get and often the charts and the scores and you'd just sit there and mm -hmm. somebody got a $5 terrible pizza and we would like, you ate know, like, we ate it. That we <laughs> ate it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Doing that again. If you're a guitar player, take an invitation from Dr. Price and I and go look up Justin Holland, H-O-L-L-A-N-D, and read his book. It was the first guitar method book published in the United States, best-selling music publication until 1910. And um, you'll be surprised at how much of your guitar education comes from that book. A whole lot of it comes from that book, whether we know it or not. Mm -hmm. uh, that's where it comes from. Um, Cheryl, what's on your mind? Well, thanks for joining us and having this conversation. It relates to so many things. It's a very universal conversation. As we always, it often ends up actually on the show. When you start digging in and talking to creative people, we find this common ground. And um, But I really, I really do appreciate you sharing some of these thoughts about just facing your fears and going towards your fears because that's, you know, we're doing that as artists. We're doing that in our daily life outside of that. So it all translates. So, so I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. What about you, Ian? Yeah. A lot of the same thing. I actually wrote down the iron sharpens iron because, you know, there's like, there's a theme that comes in through so many of these interviews um, of like finding that difficult space and not only confronting it, but also choosing to occupy it because that's sort of where the development happens right whether it's in your practicing or anything like every story that you told today was connected to some adverse experience or difficulty right like your positive attitude was connected to surviving a really difficult place and time in la and you know the best teacher and mentor you had was connected to you know a challenging first go at you know even becoming a student or you know, this learning experience with Marcus Roberts was like 
a terrifying experience at first that actually opened you up. And then lastly, that your favorite activities were your mortal fear, literally, at one point. And I just, yeah, I, I find that's like a really like good place to sort of explore. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's fun when we get to hear everyone's, all these people we admire, you know, that's the best part about doing a podcast, as you know, because you also host a fantastic podcast um, that I've been listening to. And and I feel like it's, we get to hear so much similarity. And, and what I love about this conversation that reminds me of this conversation we had recently with Jeffrey Lockhart and Tim Miller, who are two of our professors, was all of you talked about, you know, all these beautiful things like beautiful connections and being centered and, and being centered like in your love for what you're doing and your love for other people, especially when things are nerve wracking and things are difficult. And you're not shying away from the tenacity and the digging deep and the hard work that all of this requires, that it's not like one or the other, like, like you have to go deep to be free. And, um, and I, I really love that you're bringing this sort of commitment to learning as well as like a generous spirit that, you know, you want everyone to have, um, coming into it. Right. We have to have both things. And, um, and I also think it's tremendously courageous for you to come here and build a whole department. Um, I don't know if you feel like it's a courageous thing, but, um, but I, I think no, it's I, I, I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it is. Yeah. And I'm I'm excited, you know, and I will say that that the foundation was already built. My dear friend Bill Banfield for you know 15 to 17 years had built Africana Studies as a part of liberal arts. Mm -hmm. Um and, and what I've been charged to do is in, to elevate that from being a part of a department in another division to it being its own division, right? Mm -hmm. To sitting uh, you know, as, a, as its own division so that I can be in partnership with my other dean colleagues, but also in partnership with my chair colleagues, and then also in partnership with our phenomenal faculty across our entire institution. So th there's so many exciting things about it that I can't even worry about being uh, um, haunted by it and being nervous about it. It's such a phenomenal opportunity. And, and so I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful, so grateful. I, I think it's great for us too because we're trying to build within a structure as well, and I think we're we're going to be able to um, be inspired as as you are building something, you know, in this way. And uh, I think uh, I think that'll really help us. Also, you know, um, Dr. Bill Banfield uh, was a guitar player, and so he was oh, a dear yeah. friend of ours. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, we're very appreciative of his legacy as well. Um, and we think about him often. Um, so thank you so much for being with us today. Um, do you have any last words of wisdom for the students today, you think, in particular? Absolutely. You know, first of all, uh, thank you all for the invitation and for just availing, you know, me an opportunity to hang out with you all, uh, e even though I'm, I'm the hydrating one uh, in, in the group of coffee drinkers. Um, but I'd say to, to the students, both current students and uh, past students, and certainly prospective students, that there's a reason why you love music. 
and your ability to really hone in and be able to articulate that reason will help you to really forge it, will help you to really fortify it, and will help you to really protect it, right? There are too many, there's too many of us who, who give up too soon. And so I wanna challenge you, if you really articulate that you love it, hang on in there through the rough spots, hang on in there to those difficult moments and allow your love to inspire you to do the hard work, to press through. Because then and only then will you actually see how much you truly love music. And more importantly, how much music loves you back. Yeah, I love that. And that's a beautiful way to end. So everybody, we're gonna keep hanging out for a minute, but we're gonna let you all go. So thank you so much, Cheryl Bailey. Good to see you. Thank you, Ian Steed. And thank you, Dr. Emmett Price for being here on Coffee Talk. And we'll be with you on the next one, everyone. Have a great day.